Well, as I mentioned earlier, this morning I'm going to do something a, a bit different. <clears throat> the first time I went through the Psalms in our evening service, doing short devotional sermons on each of the Psalms, I, I took 14, Psalms 14 and 15 separately. Uh, but as I went back and looked at my notes and, and the outline, uh, couldn't help but noticing that when I spoke on 14, I almost couldn't help but refer to 15 <laughs> and vice versa. <clears throat> so why not take them together? Because as many recognize, just about everybody recognizes, they do go together and they're short enough, I think, to take together. <clears throat> so we're going to look at both Psalms 14 and 15 this morning. Let me read them for us. As always, this is the very word of our living God. First Psalm 14. To the choir master of David. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. And then Psalm 15, a psalm of David. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. So ends the reading of God's word, and may he write it again upon our hearts, plant it deep within us so that it would bear fruit in our lives. Let me pray. For us as we come before it this morning. <clears throat> our great God, our Father in heaven, now we come and ask your blessing as your word goes out. Again, that you would fulfill your promise, that it would go out and not return to you void, but instead accomplish all that you purpose for it and be successful in the very things for which you send it. For us, as always, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us this morning to open our ears and open our eyes to hear the things and to see the things that you would have us learn from your Holy Word. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path that we might walk according to what it teaches us. Father, we ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In 1 Kings 18, 
there's that wonderful, deservedly well-known story of Elijah's contest with the 500 priests of Baal. Who can call down fire from heaven so that their sacrifice is consumed by fire? So Elijah challenges the priests to this contest and allows them to pick the bull and to go first. And so from morning to midday to noon, these priests of Baal make an impassioned appeal to their God. But no result. Nothing happens. So by midday, Elijah begins taunting them. We find his taunt in uh, verse 27 of 1 Kings 18. It says to the priests of Baal, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, which is a nice way of saying he's uh, on the pot going number two. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Cry aloud, your god is busy. He can't hear you. After this, the priests of Baal increase in their frenzy. They're crying out, even cutting themselves with swords and lances. But still, their their God, their false God, as Elijah proved to them, did not appear. Why? Well, because there is no Baal. There is no Baal. There is no Thor. There is no Zeus. There is no Apollo. There is no Jupiter. There is no Isis. There is no Osiris. There is no Allah. Elijah mocked a false god, and doing so is harmless. In fact, in Elijah's case, it was a demonstration of his wisdom. But the Psalms before us this morning tell us more about folly and about wisdom. What a fool does, a real fool does, says Psalm 14, is deny the God of the Bible, the one and true only God. And a fool believes he can deny God and he can get away with it. Wisdom, by contrast, seeks the true God where he can be found as Isaiah instructs in chapter 55, verse 6. At the time of these psalms, when they were written, God's earthly dwelling place was in his tabernacle. But who is it who can enter into his tent and live with God on his holy hill? So we have in these two psalms a contrast between folly and wisdom. And I think a kind of exposition, a further commentary on Psalm 1. Two kinds of people in the world, the righteous and the wicked. The wise and the foolish. So I want to consider the two Psalms in turn. Look at the contrast between the two. And then where that leads us in terms of things we should take from it this morning. So first, Psalm 14 about the fool who denies God. Both psalms begin with a little bit of a technical question to to be aware of and to resolve. And in Psalm 14, 
The question is, what is the fool really saying? Many claim that this is a psalm about atheism. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, which is the right way to translate it. But is that really what the psalm is talking about, atheism? Hard to say that, I think, dogmatically, because, quite honestly, atheists, as kind of a public statement of non-faith, atheism is something that's relatively new. Atheists have been around, don't get me wrong. There have always been people who think that God doesn't exist. But the older commentaries seem to want to to portray this as um, something more about denying God in general. And that makes sense. There's some who want to say Calvin, or excuse me, that's later, um, that the reason they, they say in his heart that there's no God is they don't want to do so pub- publicly and be ridiculed. And that kind of makes sense, because in the world of David, in the world of the early church, in the world of even the Reformation, to say there is no God, you would have been mocked. Of course there's a God. You must believe in some God. And so it was either the God of Scripture or some false God, some pagan God. David probably knew very few atheists. Um, You were either an Israelite confessing the God of Scripture, Yahweh, or you were a pagan confessing the gods of the nations, such as Baal. So what a fool is saying is kind of what Elijah said to the priests of Baal, except in reverse. The fool is saying that the true God is nothing inconsequential. He's gone. He's remote. He's off on a trip. He's busy somewhere else. So when the fool says in his heart there is no God, he's he's kind of saying two things. He's either denying the existence of God himself, or he's at the very least saying God might exist, but who cares? We can ignore him. He's remote. He's distant. He's not around. He's not involved in this world and in our lives. So the broader sense of some of the older commentaries, I think, makes a lot of sense. The fool denies God, whether his existence or his presence. And that's a foolish thought. And Foolish thoughts have consequences, and the rest of the psalm flows from that foolish idea and shows us the consequences of this foolish claim. We see in verse 1 itself that it leads to three descriptions of of wickedness. Corruption, abominable deeds, and none who does good. The fool is corrupt. The fool does abominable things. The fool can do nothing good. But in verse 2, God does exist. And God kind of mocks, or at least queries about these fools. Is there anyone who understands? Is there anyone who seeks after God? Does anyone have knowledge? Does anybody understand? In verse 4, do these evildoers, do these fools get it? 
No, they don't. They eat up my people instead of calling upon me. They've all turned aside, it says in verse 3. Verse 3 echoes verse 1 in many ways. There's none who does good, not even one. Paul's going to quote this in Romans when he shows that everybody sins. No one is righteous. But this state of affairs can't last. Eventually, the fool ends up in great terror because he sees that God is with the righteous in verse 5. They would shame the poor, but the Lord turns out to be the refuge of the poor. So the fool is thwarted in his plans. The fool isn't stupid. The fool isn't ignorant. Rather, the fool is actively denying the truth about God, that he exists, that he cares for and takes care of his people. Psalm 14 ends with a plea, a prayer. And it's an expectant prayer, a hopeful prayer. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. And it looks forward to a time when the Lord will restore the fortunes of his people. Jacob will rejoice. Israel will be glad. The fool denies God. But the fool will come to nothing in the end. So that's Psalm 14. Psalm 15 is a psalm about righteous living. Psalm 14, we have God looking down from heaven to see if there are any who seek after him. In verse 2, does anybody seek me? Well, Psalm 15 begins with the attitude of of a seeker. Someone desiring to be with God. To sojourn with him. To take up residence with God on his holy hill. Now the question for this psalm is, are those two different things? We have this parallelism in in the Psalms, it's a feature of Hebrew poetry. Parallel statements, the one who can sojourn in your hill, who can dwell in your holy, sojourn in your tent, who can dwell in your holy hill. Are these two different things, two different kinds of people, two different questions, or is it two different ways of saying the same thing? Here's where Calvin comes in. Calvin argues that because sojourning is, is an idea of a temporary visit or a temporary stay, that those who sojourn in the tent of the Lord are those who are part of the church for a while, but then they fall away. Those who dwell on God's holy hill are those who stay and are preserved and persevere in the faith. But the rest of the psalm is about those who are perfectly righteous. And so I think that, unfortunately, I think here Calvin is wrong. That precludes the idea of people falling away because they're perfectly righteous. And it also says at the end of the psalm that they shall never be moved. So I don't think it's about two different kinds of people, those who persevere and those who don't. There's others who, a very popular way of looking at this is is dividing into those who sojourn in a tent being those who, the church here on earth, our temporary home. Think of what Peter says about us being sojourners and aliens. 
And so this is our place where we are the church militant, the church fighting on God's behalf, um, awaiting that time when we are ushered into his eternal presence. And then those who dwell are those who have done so. Those who have died and entered into eternity with God are at the end those who are taken into his presence immediately. But again, (laughs) this is a psalm about those who are perfectly righteous. Not about those who continue to struggle with ongoing sin, as we do here in the church visible on earth. That would exclude us from the tent. It would exclude us from the hill as well. Again, it's for those who cannot be moved. Who take up residence, not who are here for a short period of time. So in the end, I think the best way to look at the the questions in verse 1 of Psalm 15 is to see them as questions asking the same question in a different way. And the essence of the question is this. How can I live with God? How can I take up residence with God? How can I be in His presence permanently? And that's, that's a valid question for someone seeking after the Lord God. Who can do this? Who qualifies to live with God? And the rest of the psalm tells us, like 14 tells us the consequences of being a fool, the rest of the psalm tells us, well, you want to know who can live with God? Here's who it is. Someone who walks blamelessly and does what is right, in verse 2. Now, does that exclude anything? No. That's comprehensive. To walk blamelessly and do what is right excludes nothing. Perfection. Complete, utter perfection. Continues with representative examples of what holiness looks like. This is not an exhaustive list of what holiness looks like. It's representative of different kinds of holiness. We don't see anything in here about sexual purity, for example. What does doing good look like in contrast to the none who do good in Psalm 14, 1 and 3? Well, again, the one who could dwell with God speaks truth in his heart. And out of the heart comes the words that we speak. In verse 3, he does not slander. Remember verse, or Psalm 12 about lying liars. The righteous person who would live with God speaks truth and does not slander. Does no evil against his neighbor. No evil. There's no exceptions I can do that kind of evil. No, does no evil to his neighbor. Does not take up reproach against a friend, which I think is a picture of betrayal. In verse 4, despises vile people. Here again in Scripture, we're told by the world around us, Christians are supposed to love everybody. We are. We're supposed to love our enemies, do good to those who hate us, pray for them, bless those who curse us. But there is room in Scripture, for despising evil, and for hating those who do it. Who, who takes vengeance? Not me, the Lord, and his appropriate tools. 
But whether it's Romans 12 or part of 1 Corinthians 13, which speaks about love, we are to hate what is evil. That's what a righteous person does. Honors the Lord and those who fear the Lord. Someone who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, I'm willing to take a vow that if it costs me everything, I will not divert from it. I will not go back on my word. Even if the vow hurts me, even if it does personal damage, I will fulfill the vow that I have made. Does not put out his own money at interest. In other words, he freely gives to those who are in need. Does not take a bribe against the innocent. In other words, I'm not willing to give false testimony to get a little cash in my pocket. And then, the wonderful statement at the end, the promise. He who does these things, he who is like this, he who is perfectly obedient in everything he does, shall never be moved, will stand strong and stable. I've said before, the Psalms raise some challenging questions for us, force us to to look at things and what in the world is being said here? And I, the first reaction I have to a psalm like this and the things it says is, who is this mythical person? Who is this human being who is perfectly, comprehensively righteous and holy? Especially when Psalm 14 has just told us twice that no one does good. Not even one. Again, Paul quotes this in Romans and uses it against both Jew and Gentile. Every single person on the face of the earth is guilty. We see a similar issue in the New Testament reading between Jesus and this young rich man who asks him about what he has to do to get eternal life. It's the same basic question as Psalm 15.1, isn't it? What do I have to do to be with God forever? To be in his presence, to live with him forever? That's what the young man is asking. He's asking the question of Psalm 15, verse 1. What do I have to do? Tell me, Jesus. I'll do it. Jesus' answer is short and sweet. Keep the commandments. No exceptions. (laughs) Comprehensive and complete. But the young man just doesn't quite get it or, or, or wants more details. Which one should I keep? And so Jesus gives examples. Again, not a comprehensive list of commands, but they do portray a broad and a complete holiness, especially when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. So these psalms taken together present us with a bit of a dilemma. None do good, yet doing good is necessary to be in communion with God. It's not optional. If we want to dwell with God, if we want to enter into eternity with Him, perfection is necessary. 
We saw this in our Revelation study. No one can enter the city who is not pure and holy. What are we going to do? Is Psalm 15 some kind of a cruel joke? Well, let me set this high standard up here. I know none of you can do it. I'm a bit of a loner anyway. No, Psalm 15 is truth. It's God's truth. This is the standard. Perfect holiness to be with God. Psalm 15 is a reminder of the purposes of God's law. We typically speak of God's law as having three purposes or three uses. The first that we speak of is God's law is used to convince us of our inability to keep it and to drive us to Christ who kept the law for us. The second use as a rule for restraining evil in society broadly is civil use. And then the third use as the standard for holy living for God's people. Those who've looked in repentance and faith to Christ, the law keeper, as their Savior. And I think two of those uses are in mind here in Psalm 15. I rule out the second use, the civil use, because of the initial question. This is about dwelling with God. Not about how to live in society. It's also about those who cannot be moved. And we know that sooner or later the sheep are going to be separated from the goats and there will be a moving that takes place. So it's about driving us to Christ because we cannot do this on our own. And then looking at God's law and saying, this is, this is good. This is a reflection of his holy character. This is wise and proper and healthy. So I will follow God's law because of how wonderful it is. So Psalm 15 is a, is a psalm given to God's people who are in a relationship or seeking that relationship with him. So where do these psalms lead us? What do we get out of them in the end? I I do think they go together. We can see a couple things about what a fool believes. As the old song says, what a fool believes, he sees. What does a fool believe and see? Well, the first thing a fool believes is that he can deny God and get away with it. And we see from Psalm 14 and the rest of Scripture, indeed, that he cannot. There will be a judgment. There is a day coming when they will get their recompense. But the second thing that a fool believes, I think implied here in the Psalms, taken together, is that a fool thinks he can ascend God's holy hill on his own, by his own strength, by his own goodness, by his own commandment keeping. You see, the rich man is a fool. And he goes away sad when Jesus challenges him to give away all he has and to follow him. He's a fool. A fool thinks he can get there on his own to dwell with God. By contrast, the wise man believes two things at least. The first thing that a wise man believes is, I am a fool. In other words, I am full of sin. I deserve God's wrath. I deserve his punishment for my own sin. 
I have been a rebel against him. I have denied God. I cannot do anything to keep his commands, to have any sort of favor with God or acceptance before him. That's the first thing a fool realizes. I am a fool. But the second thing that a fool knows, what is Christianity? Foolishness to the wise. <laughs> a, fool knows, a fool knows, a wise fool knows that God is merciful and gracious and he seeks that mercy and he seeks that grace where it can be found one place in Jesus Christ. Because when the disciples complained or, or were astonished, greatly astonished at these interaction between Jesus and the fool, the rich fool, what did he say? With man this is impossible. See, a wise fool realizes that. With man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The wise fool knows that entrance into the holiness of God only comes through Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd who leads the way to God. He also said, I am the gate. The sheep enter through me into the sheepfold or into God's tent on his holy hill. Through Christ and his blood, the way to the holiest place, the holy of holies is made open. The veil ripped from top to bottom. We enter in through his blood by repentance and faith. You see, we can't go into God's presence. He has to come out and get us and take us with him. We need a mediator. We need someone to go between us. And that's exactly what Christ has done, what God has done for us. Sent his son to completely and comprehensively fulfill the requirements of the law. When you read Psalm 15, for us, we despair. Who can do this? Jesus did this. These are the works of our Savior. He walked blamelessly. He did what is right. He spoke truth. He did not slander. He did no evil. He did not take up a reproach against his friend. He despised evil. Honored those who feared the Lord made a vow to his own hurt. <laughs> Covenant theology. The son promised the father that he would go and save a people, knowing the hurt that would come. First, becoming a human being. Living amongst us but then dying the cruel death on the cross, experiencing the wrath of God in our place. God accepted that work, the obedience of Christ on our behalf, and offers it to us by faith and by faith alone. So the wise man, the wise woman, the wise child, as a man or woman or child of faith, humbly receiving the gift of God in Christ, 
The third thing the wise person knows is that God's law is holy, and that it is good, and that it is the means for truly healthy, wise living. So the, the, the wise person can look to Psalm 15 through Christ and say, this is me, or at least this is who I should be, and this is who I want to be. We should hear these words and want to be that person. I want to walk blamelessly. I want to do what is right. I want to speak truth. I don't want to slander. I don't want to do evil to my neighbor. I don't want to betray my friends. I want to see evil for evil and despise it rather than revel in it. I want to be with those who fear the Lord and honor them. I'm willing to to commit myself to a vow or a task, even if it hurts me. I will give freely. I will not bear false witness, even for personal gain. That's who I want to be. If I am a wise man. So the wise person looks to Psalm 15, looks to Jesus' words to the, the rich ruler, looks to the law in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, looks to Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, and all those places in God's Word where he tells us how to live. The wise person looks to these passages and studies them, and seeks to learn how to apply them and live by them. So Psalms 14 and 15 taken together are a call to repentance and faith. Don't be a fool. <laughs> be wise and seek God. A call to repentance and faith and a call to holy living by those who claim to be God's people. What else does the wise man do? He builds his house on the rock, Jesus Christ, through faith and obedience to him. When the wind and waves rise up to buffet, he will not be moved. He will stand firm. That's the promise of Psalm 15. There are two kinds of people in the world. The righteous and the wicked. Here in Psalm 14 and 15 we see them portrayed in another way. The foolish and the wise. The fool denies God. But the wise fears God. And keeps his commandments. So there are two choices before each and every one of us. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, indeed, we have been those who denied you. By your grace and your mercy, you have called us to new life, to repentance and faith in Christ, <clears throat> and to a new obedience. This is our reasonable service to you to obey you, to follow you, to seek you out. May we not be discouraged. May we not be tempted, drawn away by temptation and sin. Instead, we run the race with, with zeal and with energy, fully and completely to the end, seeking to always become more like Christ our Savior. We know that we, poor sinners on this earth, can only make a small progress 
in that endeavor in this life. So we are grateful for the work that you do to make us pure and holy in the end, to glorify us as you have glorified your Son, to raise us up as you have raised him up. Lord, again, may that day come, and may it come quickly, when we may dwell with you forever, and when your enemies are punished, and wickedness is put to death. We ask all of this in our Savior Christ's precious name. Amen.